I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us again for another episode of Undercurrents. We've got something a bit different for you this week. As I record this, we're just a few days away from the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks in New York City, which destroyed the World Trade Center back in 2001. Since those attacks, the United States has, of course, been engaged heavily in the Middle East as part of what they termed the War on Terror, which obviously has particular resonance also in these last couple of weeks, given the withdrawal by the Biden administration from Afghanistan. And at Chatham House, we're reflecting uh, throughout this week the legacies of 9-11 across a whole range of international affairs issues from security to human rights to intelligence gathering and thinking through the implications for US global leadership. In this episode of Undercurrents, we decided to do something a bit different, and we decided to speak to a group of people who have grown up since 9-11 occurred. Often 9-11 is conceived of as this critical juncture. There's a before and after 9-11 for US foreign policy, for sure. But for younger generations who have become politically conscious since 9-11, the legacies of that event are very different. And in this episode, we're seeking to explore some of those differences. I've got together with me three people who were children at the time of 9-11, two Americans and and one from Tunisia. Uh, We've drawn them from the staff at Chatham House and also from our Next Generation initiatives, the Panel of Young Advisors and the Common Futures Conversations Project, more details of which you can find in the show notes. And we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation about how 9-11 was taught to that generation, the way that 9-11 influenced America's understanding of its global role, and also how America was received in the rest of the world, and what we think the implications are for how young people today conceive of international relations and international politics. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, well, despite the seriousness of this subject matter, it's a really great pleasure today to be joined by three close colleagues of mine, all of whom, like me, were just children in 2001. We're just going to go around and and have a conversation about the legacies of 9-11, at least as, as we learnt about them at school and at university or discussed them with our friends or family and think about the political implications as well and maybe speculate a bit about what our generation have grown up thinking about as it comes to international relations. So just before we start, we'll just go around and and do some introductions, if that's all right. Hi, my name's Anar. I am the U.S. and the Americas Program Coordinator at Chatham House. I was seven years old when 9-11 happened. Um, I grew up on the West Coast, so I was at my home in Orange County, California. You know, remember running upstairs to see what was taking so long in terms of getting to go to school and I just saw my mom glued to the television and kind of remember very clearly seeing everything on the news. So though I was young, it was definitely, you know, a memory that stuck with me. Thank you. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, Samantha, 
Of course. Thanks, Ben, so much for having me. I look forward to the discussion. So I'm currently a program manager uh, in the United States Air Force. So because of that, I do just have a brief disclaimer that I have to say. So the views expressed in this podcast are solely my own. They do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So with that out of the way, um, at the time of 9-11, I was four years old. I'm on the opposite side of the coast from Anar, so I actually grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts. And so for me, I think 9-11 had a very strong impact, and I'd be interested to follow up Anar if you think that disconnect is true. But at least growing up on the East Coast, I had a lot of friends who were either in New York at the time, some who were in the attack, family friends who were in the attack itself. Um, And so for me, while I don't have specific memories of 9-11, I would still consider it a significant part of my life, really since after it occurred all the way until now. Um, So looking forward to to discuss that. Thank you. And last but not least, Monder. Hi, Ben. Thank you for the opportunity again. My name is Monder, and I'm one of the founding members of the Common Future Conversations platform at Chatham House. I am from a city called Castor in Tunisia, south of the country, and I was about four years old when 9-11 occurred. I do not actually remember the event itself when it happened, but I'm very familiar with the imagery throughout the next two years that followed and the aftermath, which I believe is going to be a huge part of our conversation today. And we'll follow up on that. Thank you very much, all of you. So just to add to the introductions, I guess. So I was seven years old as well, and I was growing up in in rural England uh, in the middle of nowhere. And I remember also coming home from school, I guess, because of the time differences and and my family were also glued to the TV, but I had no concept whatsoever at the time of what was going on, why it was significant, just that something quite major had happened. I guess just to begin the conversation, then it'd be really great to hear your memories of when you became conscious of what 9-11 meant and, and what had happened beyond your parents responding to what was happening on the news. So I think I I guess I have a bit of a maybe not unique experience with 9-11, but perhaps not not similar to many other people that I was going to school with. And I think my first conscious memory of it was on the day itself. Um, And it wasn't so much in regards to what this means for the U.S. and what this means for global politics. Um, It was more to do with the fact that I'm Muslim and and what this meant for me and my family as Muslim Americans. And, you know, like I said, I was quite young at the time, so I don't think I was fully conscious of it in that year specifically. But, you know, from that day on, my parents were very clear about, you know, how things were going to be a bit different for us. And I think from that time on, it, it definitely changed how I presented myself to fellow Americans and how I was viewed. And I think, you know, as I got older, kind of emphasized to me the difference rhetoric can make, especially when it comes from a high level in terms of furthering different public attitudes or the climate. So, you know, I think that was a little bit shocking growing up when you hear certain things on on the news or on TV that you feel don't really resonate with what you're taught at home. So that was definitely um, a big challenge. And I think One of the interesting things as well was when I was very young and we were talking about 9-11 in school or with teachers, the focus was very much on the fact that we were attacked because they didn't like the way that the U.S. operated. They didn't like that U.S. respected, you know, freedom and wanted to spread liberty. It 
didn't really take into account any U.S. actions or any U.S. misdeeds that may have led to this anger that fueled these attacks. So I think, you know, no way justifying what had happened, but it was just interesting to me when I was younger that there was very little accountability that the U.S., you know, took for itself when kind of talking about these events in school. Building on what Anar said, so I have a slightly different experience. Um, I don't have a specific memory of 9-11, but I do remember learning about it through television coverage after, but then also in school events. And this is really building on what Anar touched on was that these school events were always remembrance events. It wasn't the place for critical discussion. It wasn't really the place for challenging what had happened or our responses to it, because at least in my formative years of coming to terms with what 9-11 was, it was always an attack against the United States. And it always was kind of something that you didn't challenge, I guess, at least growing up, that was how I always felt was that you would not want to be the student to question the responses, especially immediately after. Um, So my family was also particularly hit hard with 9-11 because both my parents worked in the aviation industry. My father was a pilot. My mother was in air traffic control. And so for me, I remember this deep sense of uncertainty about our future employment where we would work, where we could work. And then of course we had friends who were disrupted in the attack. Um, And so that profoundly shaped, I think my life, but I don't think I ever had an independent consciousness of what 9-11 was. I think it was always informed by kind of these external events that we did every single year. So I guess that that really um, kind of informed my understanding um, and kind of grappling with 9-11. And then of course, for good or for bad, it really inspired me at least to pursue a career of service. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm in the U.S. military. And so 9-11, at least in part, the rise of terrorist attacks made me feel so helpless. I couldn't really process them in a way. And so I just knew I wanted to make a difference. And so for me, that difference was to pursue a career of service um, and attend a service academy. But I didn't really start critically examining 9-11 until actually I probably went to college. And so that would have been at least, what, 15 years after the events, so. I wanted to ask as well, following up on that, as you were being taught about these things, I mean, you mentioned that it was done in a relatively uncritical way, at least during your school time. But was 9-11 taught at the same time as a parcel with the military interventions that followed it in Iraq and Afghanistan? Was that sort of connection made that very much like the the war on terror, all of this was a response to 9-11. Was that something that was part of those discussions at school or or was the focus very much on on the attack itself? So from my perspective, and this might be, you know, specific to the public school that I went to, but the advanced placement U.S. history course that I took my junior year of high school, so one of, you know, the most advanced levels of history you can take in a public high school in California, we really did not touch on the Gulf Wars or 9-11 or the further U.S. interventions really that much at all. Um, And I remember being quite shocked about it at the time. um, And it was kind of just explained away as well. You know, we, we don't have time to cover these topics, the way that the system works. We need to prepare for the advanced placement exam. So we need to make sure all this material is covered. And I did remember thinking that was really odd as, you know, a high school student that we spent so much time 
studying the American Revolution and the American Civil War, but we weren't actually studying the events that had happened in our lifetime and the impact that it was having currently and, and continues to have. And so, you know, that, again, could have just been the fault of the, the specific school that I went to, but I definitely think the lack of focus on it that I experienced influenced, you know, a lot of people's opinions and kind of, I think, can you explain why a lot of Americans don't have a very strong understanding of the situation because the information that was presented to them was, as Samantha said, just a very straight shoot, uncritical, unquestionable type of information that you got from the news or, or you saw on TV and wasn't so much done in a rigorous academic fashion. I think building actually, Nara, what you just said, it's surprising because I also took that U.S. history course and we also did the same thing where we stopped probably around the Cold War. And that particular course is more intensive than the regular course. So if we were not covering 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Gulf War, most students were not covering that. So I think there was maybe a belief that it wasn't, not that it wasn't important, but that we just didn't have time or that it wasn't important enough to replace with other parts of the curriculum. And so I don't know about uh, UNR or at least Munder, I didn't really start even critically learning about the Gulf War in Iraq and Afghanistan until after I was in the military, which is a very kind of interesting way to learn about it. And probably the most rigorous, uh, my most rigorous understanding of 9-11 came at Oxford, which was not even in the country that 9-11 happened in. So just, I think an interesting kind of look at how and when we learn about 9-11. So I'm curious to see if wonder you had similar experiences or, or not. Same for me. I didn't start learning about it critically until I was in university and took a class that was specifically about U.S. history from the perspective of the U.S., you know, as an interventionist power. So, you know, that was something that I had to go out and seek for myself. It wasn't something that really came to me. It was the same thing as me, actually, Anar. I actually never formally learned about 9-11 as a standalone event. Uh, I did an exchange year in the United States, actually, when I was 16, which was funded by the American Department of State. Because of 9-11, they started a lot of cultural events after that series and they wanted to uh, you know, foster relations with Muslim countries, so they started these initiatives. So I learned it in an American high school. But when it comes to my own country, I actually never looked at 9-11 as a standalone event, as in I was never given the opportunity to actually dissect what it meant, what it was, because I believe being Arab, it was always tied to its aftermath primarily the Iraq and the Afghanistan war, um, the Bush administration, and the rise of anti-American sentiment uh, in terms of the American interventionist policies. So it took me a long time to actually have my own opinions about 9-11 as it is. But it was always a topic that was diluted with, with American foreign policy, with global security, with our actual implications in the MENA region. Up until now, it always felt like a revisionist uh, event that as time passes on, we can also reflect and, and, and kind of have much more input in what it means. But when it comes to the actual event itself, I was never really taught what it was. Our history books never extended to the actual last two decades. They always stopped at the Cold War, more or less, as Samantha said. So it's really interesting because I also had to kind of take the extra step to learn about it and form my own opinions about it. Thanks, Monde. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wanted to ask about that anti-American sentiment that you mentioned there. Could you maybe unpack that a bit more and talk to us a bit more about how that was kind of manifesting in discussions in society, at school or with your family? 
and how that interacted with your experiences when you actually went to spend some time in the United States and how did those kind of two ideas merge for you and how did you experience them? Was that quite a difficult clash? A lot of the anti-American sentiment was a response primarily to the Iraq war, which regardless of how contested it could have been, I think as, as the South, we always saw ourselves as a subordinated group, you know, and we always had this collective memory against the United States as, a, as an imperialist power going on with a specific agenda. And in a lot of ways, it really didn't trickle down from 9-11. A lot of the times, people really didn't follow up on what 9-11 meant. It was just the Bush administration a lot of rhetoric against the rise of Al-Qaeda, the rise of ISIS later on, you know, the implications on Iraq. And it was more interpersonal. You know, we were never really taught that at schools. It was never something that was shared against the United States. But it was a common discourse against many people, especially as news kept going on. And when I went to the United States, I was very aware that I had to be sensitive regarding, you know, the differences. I had to be self-aware of how I might come across the American Department of State also gave us a bit of that history that, you know, we're part of that intercultural exchange um, on a very near interpersonal level to break those barriers and identifying as Muslim. I personally, at the time it was 2013, I'm curious to hear on our perspective, it wasn't really right after the events happened or the rise of the anti-Muslim sentiment. So it didn't really sort of impacted the way I interacted, but I was aware. And I think being aware of that background was extremely important in how I carried myself. Did you find that Americans you came into contact with on, on that trip and since, did you find that they were open to talking about things like 9-11? I mean, I suppose it's not really the sort of thing that just sort of comes up when you're having a coffee. <laughs> but did you find that people were open to discussion about the various factors around it and the dynamics around it? Or did you find that you came across quite a set in stone version of events? Following up with what Samantha said, I always felt like I was treated with a walking on eggshells attitude. People really didn't only talk about it, at least in the political sense, more on the social implications, where they were. I also have a, a feeling that it was seen as a timeline mark, like pre and post 9-11, even when referring to really normal social events, anecdotes about security, following up events, but none that, that were on a big political spectrum. It was mostly really surface level conversations. And I usually initiated them actually out of curiosity. I think people were kind of reluctant on how they would approach it with me. Just to follow up on your points, I found them really interesting. Um, thanks for sharing your background. Um, I, I found it quite interesting what you you were saying in regards to the rise of anti-American sentiments, where where you're from. Just because my dad um, emigrated from East Africa to America, and when he was growing up, you know, America was very much viewed as this country of opportunity, and it was viewed in a very positive way. Um, and I think. Well, you know, it is still, I think, in a lot of ways, a country of opportunity and did give me and my family a great life. I think that image of America has started to suffer. And I am just curious to know, you know, what what the long term damage to U.S. soft power would be based on the, the past 20 years. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And just to your other point about, you know, identifying as Muslim American immediately after the 9-11 attacks, um, as I mentioned, I was quite young, so I don't really think I was conscious of it at the time. It kind of just became second nature where I was aware of the fact that, you know, I wasn't just representing myself. I was representing my entire religion and I needed to be careful in how I presented myself. And I think me and, you know, my, my family, friends and other members of my community, you know, very much viewed ourselves as 
you know, ambassadors of the religion and kind of being able to represent the fact that we could be Muslim and American at the same time. Um, and these two, you know, ideas, they, they can exist at the same time. And I think, you know, one of the hardest things for me, and this happened throughout my life, even in college, when I was speaking to, you know, individuals who were older, who had more experience, more education, where that I think the mentality was very much still viewing Islam as a religion that was associated with violence more so than other religions. And, you know, I think a lot of people's response was, well, you're, you're okay. We're not talking about you. We're talking about all of the Muslims there. And it's kind of that disconnect between being like, but I'm, I'm no different to a Muslim in the Middle East and they're no different to me. So that was, I think, a very difficult thing to wrap my head around. And I think just going back to my earlier point in terms of how much rhetoric from the top can make a difference. I don't think Muslim Americans are the first group of Americans to, to suffer from rhetoric that the administration pushes that can be damaging to minority communities. I think, unfortunately, the U.S. has a long history of that. Um, and I think we need to be careful to make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes in regards to how Asian Americans are being treated in the states today. You know, as the U.S.-China rivalry increases, I think special attention needs to be paid to the rhetoric that's used around that because we are, you know, already seeing a rise in in hate crimes towards Asian Americans, I think similar to the rise in hate crimes that occurred against Arab Americans in the early 2000s. So I think, you know, just being careful to think about how we talk about these things to make sure we're not creating the same mistakes that we have previously. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it ties into unintended consequences of political rhetoric, doesn't it? Because very much, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 and, and in the aftermath of sort of any disaster, I, I guess politicians are kind of obliged to come out with a strong response, but often that response can be rhetorical in nature. And then what that leads the audience, the public at home to then go on and do is a, a whole other story and how it changes attitudes and, and in ways that maybe aren't really the focus of what the political class are thinking about at the time. Samantha, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just very quickly on that point just building off what Anar just said, is I also think it's important to look at when politicians are responding, at least from my perspective, we didn't have an outlet or an educational outlet to learn about Islam after 9-11. And so what happened was you didn't have a nonpartisan or at least a objective look at what Islam was, at least from the school system, you really only saw it filtered through media outlets, filtered through political lenses, uh, maybe on, you know, the internet, but we never really had access to learning about the religion. And at least where I grew up, you know, it was a predominantly Protestant community. And so I didn't really learn about the fact that all of these religions have periods of violence until college where I took a, or until university where we took a course that examined, okay, the rise of the crusades and Christianity and where we really started to examine a lot of the peaceful tenants present in Islam and in other religions um, as well. But it took until university to get access to that information, at least in a professional way. And so I think a lot of students probably looked to uninformed or at least not necessarily fully accurate media sources to kind of fill those gaps, which I'm sure had harmful implications. And it just goes really to stress Anar's point about rhetoric and kind of just information access, which of course is still an issue today. So maybe this is an obvious question. So apologies, but 
what do you think we can do about that as a society? Is is the answer simply just we need to reform the education system? We need to change what is on a curriculum for a, your standard public school in the US or beyond? Or are there other other methods that we can think of to change this information space and, and to bring a bit more nuance to the to people's understanding of these issues? You know, as you say, reforming the education system is is probably key. I think, you know, allowing education that kind of fosters more tolerance and a greater understanding of of the developments around the world and perhaps a more interconnected understanding of the way events have developed. So, you know, appreciating the fact that the U.S. has been able to maintain its position in the world based on, you know, things that it has done in the past, sometimes good, sometimes bad. I think having a, a full picture of different world events would hopefully allow more people to have a better understanding of, you know, different cultures and why countries are are the way that they are. And it's not that, you know, everyone is just trying to take advantage of the U.S.'s goodwill. A lot of these countries were destabilized based on, you know, not just the U.S., but actions of previous colonial powers as well. So I think, you know, a better understanding of that, but not to, you know, make the conversation too negative, but I do have concerns that the past four years, a lot of this hateful rhetoric and xenophobia have become very normalized and very mainstream. And I think, you know, specifically hearing some comments and statements by a president of the United States empowered a lot of individuals in the U.S. and and around the world to, you know, share opinions that might not have been tolerated 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm not I don't believe the situation is hopeless. I think there's also, you know, a lot of reasons for optimism. And I think the younger generation in the U.S. seems to be a lot more politically active and informed. And that's definitely encouraging. But I do think it's going to take a little bit more work based on the damage that has been done during the past four years specifically. I think in the context of kind of the future of global leadership, Building on what Anar just said, I think a lot of threats to that future come from domestic tensions that we're seeing right now. And a lot of this hateful rhetoric from the past four years, I think, is not just the result of one president. I think that president is a manifestation of major demographic shifts that the United States needs to come to terms with. These Traditional seats of power, white voting, or white middle-class voters, rural Americans are losing that political hold that they had for a long time. Uh, White Americans are no longer going to be the majority. And this is something that I think people are struggling with, especially white Americans are struggling with is, okay, well, how are they going to exist in this new, quote unquote, new America? You have the rising conspiracy theories, a distrust in media, a genuine belief in the theft of the November 2020 election, which to me is one of the most sad things that I think we've, as as a country, we're dealing with that we're having individuals storm the Capitol in ways we hadn't seen since, you know, 1812. Um, And so, Not to end on a negative note, but I think it gets to what Anar was saying about needing to have critical discussion in our education system. I think the debate on critical theory is good. It shows that people care about what we're learning and what we're teaching our students. And then also, I think there's reason to be hopeful to see the amount of voter turnout we did, at least in this most recent presidential election and then in the Georgia runoff. So I think that is a reason to be hopeful, but it's definitely something that we as a society need to be cognizant of and really start having those conversations. As a Brit, I probably shouldn't ask a follow-up about 1812. We'll just forget about what happened there. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll move on. Less said about that, the better. Mondo, you wanted to, to come in on this as well. Yeah, I'm following up on both Samantha and Anar's points. I think there is uh, a lot of reason to be hopeful. And I think you would be surprised how that actually also impacts uh, other parts of the world because the reform of American education and the sort of like domestic discourse is still a manifestation of American soft power. And I believe that young people, at least where I live and I can see it, take a lot from American talking points. The level of awareness that has happened in parallel to the technological advancement is huge in terms of issues that to the regular American would only seem sort of domestic from within. But Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the, the, the attack on, on, on uh, the capital, uh, minority rights, all of that. It does seem like it's, it's a process that happened like in the last two decades to raise awareness among Americans. But the soft power, I believe, is still there and is still present. And hope for the American public would also positively, I think, impact people my generation in terms of how we deal with our own issues and view American leadership on a global scale. Thanks for saying that. I, I was actually going to come to you and, and bring us back towards the 9-11 question with this whole idea of America's reputation within the Middle East and, and North Africa. After two decades of war and massive uh, crises caused by, in some ways, US actions in, in the Middle East, do, do you think that there is this kind of sense that America's reputation in the region can be improved again? Is there still a, a belief or an optimism in, in the American way of doing things that is sort of salvageable from this? Um, even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some interesting rhetoric from the Biden administration as part of the withdrawal from Afghanistan as well, of course. So it seems that these tropes and, and these attitudes towards the region are still very much present in the US. I think it's very tricky because it obviously depends on who you're going to talk to. I cannot give you a, a single answer because I would say the, the, the regular citizen, if we can kind of qualify it for that, has a bit of dissenting opinions on you know America's inefficiency in actually dealing with the crises. But at the same time, there is this expectation that the United States should get involved in crises as well. So there really is that kind of like lack of one solid cohesive rhetoric in terms of how we view the United States. I think on a more general term, I do believe that the rise of you know, the Arab Spring issues, the war in Syria, the war on terrorism has shown that the United States and in some part the international organizations, but that's another discussion, were not really efficient in being the global leaders that they always proclaim themselves to be. But there is still, I think, a part that views the United States as a necessary presence in the region to counter other uh, presences, because I think the United States still symbolizes uh, a single wing, you know, against primarily the Iran, Russia, China spectrum. And, 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 and there is a belief that the United States should be present in the Middle East. Otherwise, we don't know how what the alternative could be. So there's a lot of really contradicting opinions on how the United States should manifest itself. And it's in parallel to the recent crises that have arised in the last two decades. I agree with Maunder uh, a lot on his, his statement about, you know, the fact that a U.S. presence still might be wanted because, you know, we don't know what the alternative would be. And I'm, I'm not from the Middle East, and apologies if I have misunderstood this, but my understanding is that there's, you know, this belief that the U.S. doesn't take the interest of uh, other countries into account when it decides its actions. It kind of is only operating on the basis of U.S. self-interest. And, you know, I think that's 
that's understandable. The, the U.S. is never going to act entirely selflessly. It will need to, in order to be tenable to the U.S. domestic population, it needs to further U.S. interests as well. But I think if the U.S. is serious about wanting to change its image, specifically in the Middle East and specifically with Muslim countries, it needs to make it more clear that it is trying to act in a way that also benefits these countries' interests and is, you know, supporting them and is not only just going into their region of the world to serve their own purposes. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask Anar and Samantha, actually, whether you think that this sort of global leadership role that the United States has played since the Cold War, whether that idea is still relevant to younger generations in the United States. Obviously, we've seen how popular in some ways American withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan has been domestically it seems to have a consensus across the aisle in terms of its legitimacy within the public. Do you think that that's indicative of the fact that younger voters in the US are sort of thinking that the days of intervention should be over, that not isolation should be the answer, but that America pulling back from presuming to take this leadership role should be happening? Do you think that we will be seeing these trends sort of play out a lot more among younger people as as our generation kind of comes to prominence and gains political agency as we get older? Yeah, I think it's this is an interesting question. Um, I'm not very, very familiar with U.S. history and, and interventions and the different wars in terms of public opinion. But my understanding is that, you know, the U.S. public for the most part, kind of was in in support of a more minimal role for the U.S. on the global stage, unless the U.S. was under direct attack. So you saw, you know, spikes in U.S. approval for more um, of a global presence, you know, after Pearl Harbor, after the 9-11 attacks. And I think in the past 20 years, it's become more clear that many of the threats to U.S. security are more homegrown or come from more domestic actors than foreign actors. So I think in regards to the younger generation, I think there's this very strong feeling that Samantha alluded to earlier that we need to fix our problems at home before we can fix problems abroad. And I think a lot of that, you know, is fixing our democratic institutions, kind of healing some of the, the partisan divides that we're seeing get more and more spread out. And I think by setting the example at home, this will, you know, improve the U.S.'s global standing because it can, you know, prove to the world that it's, committed to what it says, to the values that it says it stands for. So I, I don't think that the next generation is completely wary of U.S. global sh- leadership. I just believe that they probably want the U.S. to focus on problems at home. And I think it's also interesting to maybe think about what issues the U.S. may not have addressed because they were caught up in this 20-year war. So, you know, a lot of other issues like climate change and and inequality had the opportunity to kind of fester and expand while the U.S.'s resources and attention were put elsewhere. So that's just something that I've kind of thought was interesting to think through from my own perspective. Samantha, what do you think? Do you think this this leadership role still has relevance? Um, I absolutely do. So I don't think we necessarily can equate the support of a withdrawal to a lack of U.S. presence. And I also don't think that, you know, there's necessary parallels. I mean, there are some parallels between the withdrawal from the Soviet Union, from Afghanistan, but I don't think that we're looking at the end of America's relevance. I think, as Anar hinted at, we are looking at a shift in how the U.S. leads. And I think from young voters, 
they care about different issues. So like in our alluded to, the main threats are largely homegrown terrorism, not really the large scale terrorist attacks like we saw in 9-11. You know, thankfully we have not seen an attack of that level since 9-11. So I think the expectation, at least from young voters, is for the US to lead, but in different issue areas that have more salience to them, like climate change, like race relations, like I'm gonna make a shameless plug for the importance of outer space security. That's just my personal research interest. But this expectation of the US to maintain and to lead in global commons, and especially in contested global commons, like in the South China Sea and the freedom of navigation movements out there. So I think in that regard, there's still this expectation and probably a positive expectation of the US to continue to lead, or if not, refocus and lead more in those areas. Um, And I also think it's important to note that I don't think the importance and the focus in the Middle East is going to go away because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think we will still be present. Mondar alluded to this as well, because terrorism, while not maybe as important of an issue, at least as salient of an issue as 9-11, it's still relevant. And from a strategic perspective, we want to make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a place of refuge for extremist groups like ISIS uh, in 2015. So I think the U.S. still absolutely has interest in the region. I think the way that we express those interests will probably be more on the side of soft power or um, at least not a full-scale occupation like, like we saw in Afghanistan. Thank you so much. I I think actually that's a a really interesting place to end. We've had three fantastic answers to that final question about US global leadership. Thank you all of you for joining me. This was a really, really fantastic conversation. And I hope that it's a springboard for some really interesting research to come and uh, look forward to working with you on those. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben, so much. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you found it insightful. If you'd like to find out more about what Chatham House is doing on the legacy of 9-11 and some of the other themes that we discussed in this conversation, then visit our website at www.chathamhouse.org. We'll also provide a few interesting links in the show notes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode, but until next time, thank you very much for listening.